Well, good morning. It's really good uh, to be with you. Thank you for your, your welcome, Stuart. Really good to be with you, even in these uh, strange circumstances. And even as Jim did, I'm sure, last week, let me bring you the very warm greetings of Central Baptist Church and the congregation there. Um, let's turn, shall we, to God's Word. If you have a Bible there, please read along with me. We're going to read and just uh, walk through Psalm 139, which we uh, sang in opening. Psalm 139, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help. And Lord, as we turn to your word now, we do indeed pray that the Spirit of God would come now and be our teacher, that we might hear your word, know it to be from you, know it to be true. And Father, that we might learn its lessons, that we might glorify you in our lives, and that we might learn to live well and wisely for you in these strange days that we find ourselves in. For these things we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, they are, they are strange days, aren't they, that we continue to find ourselves in. 
I wonder as we look to the future with uh, uh, restrictions changing as it seems almost on a daily basis, if I were to ask you, uh, what is your greatest fear? I wonder, what would you say? Well, I'll tell you mine, which uh, may reveal a little bit more about myself than is wise. But still, nonetheless, at my at my lowest moments, when my faith is most fragile, as I look to the future, my, my greatest fear is, will God be there? Will God be there? Whether the circumstances are good or bad, will God's guiding, sustaining, loving presence be there? Or is there some path, some valley, some thrill, some tragedy down the road that could separate me from him or cause me to turn away from him? Well, that fear, often that unspoken fear, is exactly, I believe, what this psalm here addresses and assures us of. The presence of God, the the constant presence of God. All of the time, through all of life, in all of its circumstances. Now for some that might be a scary thought, but actually when David says, and we'll discover he does, when David says that we can never escape this God, the the mood isn't that of some kind of Orwellian big brother, that of some kind of overreaching state. Because we'll discover David doesn't want to escape God. Rather he wants to tell us that there is nothing like knowing that, that God is there. That God is always there for you. It is being alone. It's being cut loose that is to be feared. Not the joyful, persistent, protective presence of God. And that's what David wants us to discover here. Not just for today, but for every one of our tomorrows. Through this dreadful COVID season and beyond. Whatever disappointments, whatever restrictions we may find ourselves placed under. Whether as a church or as individuals. The child of God need never fear being isolated. So what did David uh, teach us in this psalm about the, about the God who is there? Well, firstly, in verses 1 through 6, he, he points out, does he not, the, the, the intimacy of God's presence. The intimacy of God's presence, that God is not distant. Rather, the psalmist says, every every detail of our lives is, is known by God and to God. Look at what he says. He says, you have searched me and known me. He knows the pattern of our activities, the daily rhythms of our lives. He knows when I sit and when I rise inside and out, I am, I am known by God. You discern my thoughts from afar, says the psalmist, in the sense that even before I have a thought, before a thought becomes a thought, God knows it the same with the words upon my tongue. And then verse 5, you have, you have hemmed me in, behind and before. And then for good measure, he says, you have, you have laid your hand upon me. You've really closed me in and, and surrounded me, God. That's what David is saying here. Well, I wonder as you hear that, how do you respond to that? To a God who is is that close. In an age when we are all more aware than we have perhaps ever been of our personal space. And if anyone comes into it, we start to freak out a little bit. 
How does that make you feel? Threatened? Suffocated even? Like I, I, I need to breathe? Do you feel a panic attack coming on? I'm one of those folks, even in the good times of life, who <laughs> doesn't like to be stuck in a crowded lift. There's a sense of, oh Lord, please don't let it break down. Please don't let anyone speak to me. Is that how you feel when you read these words? Well, if you do, then you have misunderstood. Because look at David's response to this in verse 6. It is worship. It is wonderful, he says. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, it is high. I cannot attain it. It's like he's saying, I, I can't get my head around the fact that I should be known like this. That God should be this close to me. But instead of it making him want to panic, it makes him want to burst out in praise. Now you could, if you like, you could sum verses 1 to 5 in, in, in theological terms. You could say that they describe for us God's, God's omniscience. That God knows all. That God knows everything about everything and about everyone. You could do that. And of course, theologically, you would be right to do that. But David doesn't. Because in and of itself, that is just a, a fact that goes into your head. And David doesn't want it to be a fact that goes into our head. He, he wants to revel in it as a truth that has gripped his life. He wants to proclaim it in praise. And he wants anyone who hears him or who reads his words to see that this truth should take hold of us and bring us to the point where we say, it's too much. It's too wonderful. I can get my head around it, but I adore you for it, God. That I am known by God. And if you get this, I want to suggest that your response will be like that of David. Humble, thankful, joyful adoration. Every time you, you ponder God, not just his transcendence, but also his, his imminence, the fact that the high and holy God of all the universe, he knows me. He knows me. He knows my name. He has numbered the very hairs of my head. He has me graven on the palms of his hand. Well, when we get that, I, I, I want to suggest it will lead us not just to collect facts about this God, but to worship him. So that's the first thing we see, the, the intimacy of God's presence. But the next thing that we see in verses 7 through 12 is the, is the inescapability of God's presence. Now maybe you've heard the, the, the phrase, you can run but you can't hide. And maybe you've heard that in relationship to God and that's true. It's true from rebel prophets like Jonah through to prodigal sons. But that's not David's emphasis here. Rather through asking and answering a series of, of questions, he wants us to realize that there is nowhere that we can go. Not geographically, not emotionally. That there is nowhere the child of God can go where he or she will ever be abandoned by God. How inescapable is God's presence Totally, says the psalmist. And again, that's wonderful. You see, when he says in verse 7, where shall I go? It doesn't necessarily lead us to, to, to think that he wants to go anywhere, that he wants to go anywhere out of God's presence. 
Although, if we're honest, I guess there are times when we would have to admit that we would. Maybe if we're in the midst of doing something that we shouldn't, maybe in the flow of an angry outburst, maybe messing around with something on the internet that we really should steer clear of, maybe if we're caught indulging in a critical or gossipy spirit, I guess there are lots of situations where we might wish to be able to to shut the door or, or turn down the lights and exclude God because if the Lord was to return and catch us in the midst of stuff like that, then we would burn with shame. But David here seems quite thrilled about the prospect of God's inescapable presence. You know, we all of us wish, don't we, that, that we could move beyond these, these days. They're wearying, they're anxious, they, they, they drag on, that we could move beyond them and live life like we remember where we could travel, where we could start new chapters, perhaps a new chapter in a new city, uh, studying university without reservation, where we could begin new adventures. So I have a daughter. I have three sons, but I also also have a daughter. (laughs) And she graduated last year, and she, she got to start her dream job. And she's thankful for that, and so are we. But it should have been accompanied by a move down south, And by a whole bunch of international travel, it should have been accompanied actually by her splitting her time between the UK and uh, and India, but she's stuck at home with her parents. She's so thrilled about that. (laughs) Working in her dining room, which is okay because we're not exactly having a lot of dinner parties these days. Not knowing when or even if things will will get better, but actually... Do we ever know? Do we ever know? I mean, who really knows what lies ahead? That old chorus, it's right when it says, I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. So given that uncertainty, the really important question, regardless of what may may open up for us in the future or press down upon us, is wherever I go, will God be there? Will God be there for me? Will God be there for those I love? Or is there somewhere I can go in this world? Is there some experience I can go through what I, I might, as it were, drop off God's GPS system? Well, look at what David says here. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in in Sheol or in the grave, you are there. No height that is too high. No depth that is too deep for the God of the Bible. In the ancient pagan world, you probably know this, but there were a whole there were a whole raft of little territorial gods in ancient mythologies. There were some 63 different gods who were credited as having a stake on the, on the underworld. That was their territory. No one else could get in. But here what the psalmist is telling us is that the God of the, the Bible respects no such boundaries. We don't have exclusion zones in biblical faith. Rather, if I make my bed in the depths as in If I go to the grave trusting in Jehovah, whether through COVID or whether through cancer, even there you will not abandon me. 
And so if no depth is too deep, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that no, no distance is too far. If I take the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, wherever I go in this world, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And again, this truth, this truth, it is not meant to terrorize you. It is meant to comfort you. David goes on, even the darkness, verse 11, is not to be feared. Now, the term here for, for darkness isn't spelt out for us. Sometimes darkness is used to describe death. It's used to describe the grave. But, of course, he's already spoken of that. So it's not likely that he's speaking of that again. So at other times, darkness is used simply to describe any kind of distress or, or turmoil that might threaten to unsettle us. So sickness or anxiety or depression or unemployment so a broken car or a broken heart. Look what the psalmist says. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Some of you need to know that today. Some of you will need to know that in the coming days. Because you might, in the providence of God, you might be led through a time of darkness. And the thing about darkness is, it's dark. It's dark. Or at least it is to us. But not to God. And that's what David wants us to see. Not even in the darkness can we escape from this God, for darkness is not dark to him. So what? Always a good question to ask when you come to the Bible. So what? So no matter my circumstances, no matter what the coming days and weeks and months hold, I need not fear because no experience can ever prevent God's presence from reaching me. Now listen, that is not to say, and, and David doesn't say, that no bad experience will ever befall us. Or that when bad things happen to us, we will always be able to remain perfectly calm and unruffled. But it is to say, no matter what befalls me, I will not be left alone. You will not be left alone. Even the dark threads that God at times weaves into the tapestry of our lives, while they are dark to us, they are there as a result of the, of the weaver's skillful hand and he knows what he was doing and he will not abandon us. Well, thirdly, he says we need to know something about the, <laughs> the inception of God's presence. It's dreadful being a preacher. Sometimes you, you feel you need to come up with something that begins with the same letter. So we've got intimacy, inescapability, and inception. But I, I think it's there. Let me put it another way. When did this 
God begin to care for us in this way? Well, we see that in verse 13. The reason we can have such an assurance of God's abiding presence in our lives is because it it began, it it touched, it watched over, it, it cared for my life even before I was consciously aware of it. You form my inward parts, says the psalmist. David is going back before his birth to the very moment of his conception and he's saying, even there you watched. Even there you cared. Even there you you touched my life with your presence. Now that is, of course, and I'm sure that you see it, that is, of course, a, a powerful, compelling, moral and ethical argument to protect the life of the unborn child. Because that child matters to God. Because that child is a child, not just a a bunch, a collection of tissues. But however powerful an argument this is, and it is for the sanctity of life, that that is not actually how David is using it here. Rather, he's using it to to buttress the believer's assurance in the abiding presence of God. He's saying, even there, even there you were caring for me, watching over me, long before I realized it. I was intricately woven together in the depths of the earth as in the secret place, my mother's womb. And not only that, all of the days, all of the days of my life were written for me in your book before one of them came to be. Everything, Everything was placed under God's direct presence and care. Now, why is he saying this? Not to provide an argument against abortion, though it does. But to make a point, and the point is this. If the Lord God has has had his hand upon me from conception if he was intricately involved in the, in the miracle of weaving me together, if all of my days are recorded, if God has shown that level of care and interest in me, then surely, surely, think it through with me. He is not going to lightly cast off or abandon me or forsake me in any circumstance of life. No, God will never lightly walk away from his own. That's where this argument takes you. And because of that fact, this becomes not only an argument for assurance, but another grounds for praise. And so he says in verse 14, I praise you. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, we need to move on. Verse 17, it's praise again, isn't it? He says, how how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them than that could be a reference to to any and every thought that God may have, but it's more likely in the context of this psalm and all that it is saying to be a specific reference to the amazing fact that God should choose to think of him. Blows my mind, says David. It is precious to me beyond description. How, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, that you should think of me at all? And again, his response, what is it? It's worship. And it would be kind of nice to stop there. And I've probably spoken for longer than I should. So maybe I should. 
Because when you read on into verse 19, it, it seems no doubt to many of our ears, particularly to our modern ears, it seems no doubt like a kind of a, like a black cloud has arrived to, to spoil an otherwise sunny day, doesn't it? So far we've reveled in this loving, caring, protecting, present God. That's the God of verses 1 through 18. But now it's like we enter into new territory and, and we find ourselves asking, what's all this talk of, of slaying and hatred and, and, and enemies? Where did that come from? So we might be tempted to say it would be nice to stop at verse 18. Or would it? Or would it? I want to suggest that if you stop there, you get much less of a psalm than if you continue. If you take verses 19 through 24 out of the psalm, you're not quite left with the real deal because they're not an aberration at the end of a psalm. They are an explanation as to the importance of the psalm. Why was it that David was so concerned to know about God's presence in his life because he was in a bind because his enemies were bearing down upon him and threatening his life because the pressure was really on because he was tempted to give in to despair and when is the presence of God most precious to us isn't it just then when the pressure is really on when we don't know what's happening when we are tempted to think that no one cares when is it that we begin to get a, a real glimpse and understand and be strengthened by the precious truth of God's abiding presence that we are not left alone. It's when everything else seems to be falling apart, isn't it? When everything else seems to be conspiring against us. You see this psalm, this lovely, beautiful, precious psalm, it wasn't written in some quiet corner of a library. It wasn't penned in a daisy-filled meadow on a sunny afternoon. No, rather it was birthed in the school of life, in the school of affliction. David felt alone, he felt afraid, he felt abandoned by men. If you know his life at all, you'll know that he was often pursued unjustly, that he was slandered, that he was let down by those he looked to as his friends, that there were times when he felt utterly alone and in a pit. That's what made God's presence in his life so, so precious to him. So don't see these closing verses as a dark cloud spoiling an otherwise lovely psalm. See them as the reason why this psalm is so lovely. Even if everything seems to be conspiring against you. Even if as you look to the future you, you have this almost overwhelming sense of anxiety. Even if everyone seems to be abandoning you. If you are a believer. If you have made the sovereign God your refuge. 
God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. You can never be anywhere, not geographically, not emotionally, where his presence cannot touch your life. But still very quickly, very, very quickly, what do we do with David's prayer? Because it doesn't seem quite Christian, does it? (laughs) Slay the wicked. I really hate those who hate you. What do we do with that? Well, we don't have time to unpack that, but let me suggest what you don't do. Don't make the mistake of saying that this God is somehow different from the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament God is angry. The New Testament God is all loving and accepting. You know, you know as well as I do, that Jesus had more to say about the coming judgment than anyone else in the pages of Scripture. Also notice that David's enemies are not just David's enemies, they're God's enemies. He's not out to exact personal vengeance for people who have let him down. He doesn't seek to do that. Rather, he commits his way to God and he prays that God would act. He's not going in a personal vendetta. He's saying, oh God, would you not act? But lastly, note that in doing it, he is not insensitive to the fact that even as he is praying for evil to be punished, evil may very well be found in his own heart. So he's not just saying, sift them, search them. He's saying, sift me, search me. Well, we need to close. Again, what is your greatest fear? Your greatest fear as you look to the future for yourself, for your family, for your church here. If we take God out, we're left, aren't we? We're left on our own, looking out to that still distant horizon, hoping for the best, but maybe fearing the worst. But with God, the God who is there, we discover that we are made by him and for him. That we are infinitely precious to him. That nothing can ever separate us from him that he has got us and that we can trust our future to him let me pray father i pray that you would take your word and that you would bring it home to bear upon our hearts and our lives in such a way that your children are encouraged that those who perhaps are here or listening in who have yet to trust in you, might see that, well, that they need to. And that they need not go through this life on their own. And Father, I pray that you would help us, these, this dear congregation here at St. Pete's, the folks at Central, your people, wherever they are found, not only in this land, but throughout this world. Lord, to bow before and to humbly rejoice in your persistent, protecting presence that even in these strange and anxious days we might be a people who are marked by hope. And may others see this and have cause to inquire of the God who gives it to us.
For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.